You're listening to a special episode of Policy, Guns and Money, covering voices from Land Forces 2018. In this episode, you'll hear from Katia Theodorakis, Albert Palazzo and Kate Lewis. And later on in the show, Marcus covers all of the inspiration coming out of Land Forces this year, including Aussie diggers and DST scientists coming together to imagine what the future of war there would look like. But first, let's hear from Aspie's Defence Editor Brendan Nicholson to put the Land Forces Conference in context. In 1925, as the Army faced a need to modernise despite the nation's limited resources after World War I, one of Australia's most distinguished generals assembled many of its best military thinkers to help plan the way forward. The then Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Harry Cheval, who'd given the order for his men to launch their successful cavalry charge against Turkish trenches at Beersheba, established a tradition that now sees similar gatherings every two years. The Chief of Army Land Forces Seminar, which was previously known as the Chief of Army's Exercise, have examined topics as diverse as air-land battle, the human dimension of war, the application of social networking to Army, adaptive responses to complex environments and the modernisation of land forces in the region. And strong and open discussion over many decades has helped develop concepts that have significantly improved the Army. Katia Theodorakis is Program Manager for Foreign and Security Policy at the Conrad Adenauer Foundation's Regional Program in Canberra, and she's researching a PhD at the Australian National University. Katia has just delivered a very thorough, thought-provoking lecture on jihadi ideology, terrorism, and what makes citizens of a wide range of nations go off to become foreign fighters and what drives them once they're there. And I was interested... Katya, that you you started off by explaining that the threat doesn't come from jihadists alone. There's a range of ideologies out there on the right as well as the left or the Islamic extremist side. What are are some others that would would worry us? Um, Right-wing extremism would be the most obvious one at the moment. And as I mentioned, that you have similar dynamics. They feed off each other because they do construct identities in the same way. They also feed off grievances. They also propose, as, as a solution, a better society based on the principles of their political ideology. And at the moment, right-wing extremism is gaining more traction because we're also seeing a mainstreaming of right-wing ideas that are also, they're not maybe not necessarily connected to violence directly, but we're seeing an increase in hate speech when the only the recent um, Steve Bannon incident of trying to give him a platform at the New Yorker festival or also having him here in Australia on the um, ABC interview there are just some examples of maybe a more of a radicalization of general discourse so that's the most obvious one but um, when I look at some of those dynamics that I see in the um, jihadist movements I go way back to how Germany was radicalized during the Nazi era. I grew up in Germany and that kind of education around civil liberties and, and, and how that kind of died down for a while, that was a pretty big part. So you're seeing those dynamics there. Um, you're seeing it in com- Soviet communism. They're, they're all based on this idea that you will have a utopian society that's based on a better, modified, morally superior man. You're seeing it in cults. In, um, you can see it in religious fundamentalisms, also in apocalyptic um, cults. They have the same identity constructions that they're seeing the in-group, the pure, 
you know, the master race or whatever it is, um, the, you know, the real believers that you're getting, the true believers, and they have to abstain from mainstream society because that would dilute their ideals and their fervor. Those dynamics, they're, they're very widespread dynamics. They're coming in different variations and manifestations, but it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing unusual. So that's why it's also good to see that jihadism is not this one big threat, even though it is. It's the most significant security threat we have, but there's some very human and sociological dynamics that have been around for a long time. And you talked about um, the idea of Orientalism, where we in the West see people in the East as inferior, and we have done for a long time. And this has been swung around to... Occidentalism. Just explain how that works. Um, It's the mirror image, really. Um, Some say it's just a revenge to Orientalism, that it's a reaction. I think that maybe doesn't quite do it justice because some of those movements, those Occidentalist movements and and ideas, they've been around for a long time. As even um, the German Romantic tried to provide a counterpoint to um, what they saw as the ills of rationalization and industrialization, and they were against Enlightenment ideals because they're saying that um, it just kind of the demystification of society is not where the human race should go because it takes away our bonds of community. It takes us away from the essence of who we really are. And it's, it's quite interesting to see that a lot of those ideas will then be picked up by um, different movements. Um, not necessarily that they're based on it, but they're all drawing from the same pool of ideas. There's a big counter movement in, 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 in Asia, in Japan, to, to Western influences, some of it they try to subvert some of the influences and make it their own. The Iranian Revolution would be a very big example that was initially supported by intellectuals like Foucault, seeing that there is maybe something there that would provide a different different version of history and a different conceptualization of man. But then, of course, politically, these movements are fraught with violence. So we think in the West that in the, um, the post-Cold War era, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that we'd, we'd entered a, a new and fairly civilised era where we had, we were fairly idealistic, we were, we were fairly forgiving. Then what's happened now is that we've got a, a movement within Islam that is actually portraying us as the bad people and our society as degenerate and the people fighting us as, as pure and and idealistic is is that correct yeah that's a good way to conceptualize it and that it is a broader reaction it's not against maybe some of the intellectual currents that we've seen since the end of the cold war maybe that this triumph of liberalism and the end of history was just not only premature but it was almost it was arrogant that we thought we had it figured out not actually valuing that people had different ideas of where world history was going to go and maybe silencing of some of these other discourses and and lifting up liberal west as triumphalist victor narrative and and then 9-11 came along and I think that gained even more traction and fervor and I think that's where a lot of these um, challenges now come from not just from jihadism but in general anti-Western discourses that take issue with the moral superiority of the West You've obviously done a lot of research and, and considerable depth and, uh, and the, the imagery and whatever that you showed us in, in during your um, explanation of this whole thing uh, really carried the message that many of these jihadists actually see themselves as pure and kind intellectual about the whole process but there's also as we've seen unspeakable cruelty 
How do those two things tie up? I think it comes back to those mechanisms of dehumanization that you have to undergo in order to build this new world order. It's often said that any utopian movement will have to have a totalitarian seed in it in order to bring about this better order. You need to silence those critics um, that would oppose it. And you justify that by saying, well, we have the only true, morally pure, good order, and anyone who stands in the way killing them is just a sacrifice we have to make so it actually becomes an ethical act because they're in the way so if you behead somebody it's going to be difficult but with isis you get this extra element of just sheer brutality and there's no coherent profile of what you know the typical jihadist is like there's many different backgrounds many different motivations i was talking about some general themes and trends that we're seeing every radicalization journey is obviously different and different things matter and and, and there is a noted um, confluence of criminalist backgrounds and networks also with jihadi trajectories for various reasons redemption and um, relying on those networks but i think it's it, it becomes imbued, the brutality, even beheading someone, even if it's just for the sheer heck of it, it just becomes imbued with this sacred meaning, symbolic violence, um, because it makes you feel better. You're not just a common criminal that just takes pleasure in killing someone. You're doing it in the service of the New World Order. How much of what we're seeing in, in terms of terrorist violence comes out of socioeconomic disadvantage? It's hard to quantify. It depends on it depends on where you are as well. I think in the Middle East you're getting certain hot spots where there there are no perspectives. Where, for example, Tunisia after the Arab Spring. I mean, it's it's been heralded as one of the success stories of the Arab Spring, where actual political change has occurred. But it didn't necessarily mean that perspectives for young Tunisians were so much better. So I think there was a greater propensity towards radicalization and seeing what happened to Syria and then created this this moment of crisis that was a bit of a, a rupture that will would then provide the impetus for people to, to leave Tunisia and, and, and seek a better life as a, as a jihadi fighter. Libya is another case in point. And I think a lot of the... Um, there's some terror networks that have been connected now with Libyan fighters that have then the Birmingham and the Manchester bomber had some had a Libyan connection, if I'm not mistaken. So you're just getting this confluence of factors. And I think in developing countries, you will get a greater group of people who are maybe more motivated by socioeconomic factors where jihad just promises a better life. I think the emotional and the spiritual um, component shouldn't be neglected. That they also add this element to it where they're saying, well, my family, once I become a suicide bomber, my family will also receive greater honour in the afterlife. And how important is it for us to understand what's motivating these people? It's the first step. If we don't understand um, what motivates them, how can we effectively counter it? I mean, I mentioned before that it's you know the old mantra of know your enemy and know yourself. I think it's good also to understand that. It's not that we need to take their criticism seriously because it's got marriage, but we need to understand what gives rise to these ideas. A very fascinating example is um, the youngest Australian suicide bomber, Jake Pilati, in delving into some of his readings. Um, it's not that he's providing a very legitimate um, critique of Australian society. No, he had his own radicalization journey and probably some very, very simplified thinking. But at the same time, seeing someone from within our society who was a school kid from an affluent suburb in Melbourne, how he would then 
the stories he's grown up with, how he turned them around to legitimize becoming a suicide bomb. I think that's important, even for our wider discourse when we're looking at countering populist thought of maybe not necessarily violent thought, but um, more populist, more extreme discourse in our societies. What, what causes that kind of disconnect or emotional connection to, to the mainstream narrative of where our societies are going? Karin, thanks very much. It's very interesting. Thank you so much. Fun. Military historian Albert Palazzo delivered a sobering analysis of the sort of combat environment likely to confront the ADF in any future conflict. The thrust of his message was that rapidly developing technology has meant the depth of the killing ground we've known as no man's land has increased from the range of a field gun in World War I to something like 2,000 kilometres. That's made it vital to know what an enemy is doing on the other side of that 2,000 kilometres. Al, you've just given a fascinating dissertation on the whole idea of a, a sort of protected zone or a no man's land, where we're looking at back to World War One, where we might have been looking at a sort of safe area outlined by the range of an artillery piece. Now you're making the point that sort of a no man's land is really something like 2,000 kilometers deep. How do we deal with this? Yeah, thank you for that, Brendan. Um, and I will answer that in a moment, but as always is the case, I just want to stress to your listeners that these words are my own and are not necessarily reflective of any government policy or any of the policies of the Department of Defense or the Australian Army. They're my own thoughts. And yes, as a historian, a military historian, um, I got my start in the American Civil War and in the First World War. And in the American Civil War, towards the end, in 1864, trenches began to appear in abundance and defensive firepower started to sweep the ground in front of positions with a lethal mix of uh, lead and steel. That trend, which started in 1864, reached its heights in 1918 on the Western Front of the First World War, where defensive firepower, machine guns, breech-loading rifles, quick-firing artillery, mortars, were able to cover the intervening ground between the two sides, between the German army and the Franco-British-American uh, armies, with a dense lethality of lead and steel which resulted in the deaths of thousands of soldiers who attempted to cross that zone. That was the no man's land, was the term that we used back then. So now what I'm, I believe we're seeing is the emergence of a new no man's land in which precision missiles and very advanced sensors can target and track targets in the maritime domain, in the air domain, and in the land domain up to ranges of 2,000 kilometers or more. And if we then include the cyber domain and the electronic warfare domain and also the social media domains of war, we're then looking at not just a theater-sized killing zone, but a global one, where an adversary will be able to launch an attack upon an opponent's homeland, even if it's on the other side of the world. And so we now, as, as military organizations who need to operate in this space, the critical you know, tactical and operational question going forward is how do you maneuver in this space to close with the enemy 
and gain an advantage and do so in such a way that your soldiers survive the maneuver. And this, you know, this challenge is just really emerging and these technologies will only improve, gaining lethality, gaining strike capability. So it's a problem that will not go away, but will intensify. And like the generals of the First World War, we may find ourselves in a situation where we have to understand how do you maneuver over a theater-sized space and do so to gain an advantage over an enemy equipped with such systems. So how can a soldier survive in this sort of environment? Like you really need to know what's going on 2,000 kilometers away. Yes, exactly. One of the keys of the First World War uh, was the invention of the first intelligent fusion center, the first that ever existed, and that was called the Counter-Battery Staff Office. Today, we still continue that legacy, and all armies have such centers. But I suggest that we need something that's even more intensive, that incurs not just the military, but also a whole of government uh, integration into the gathering and actionability of intelligence gathered from myriad sources. And with that intelligence, I would expect that an adversary would be able to suppress or neutralize the other side's ability to interdict that no man's land. Now, in the First World War, this interdiction was uh, all kinetic, things blowing up, high explosives. I also suspect going forward that the cognitive domains will be the key element, and that includes being able to launch yeah, not just cyber attacks, but also weakening the adversary through social media by sowing confusion, uh, by camouflage, by disrupting their own systems in, in many different ways, all with the intent of gaining the ability to neutralize the end, you know, the, your opponent's defensive fire at the point in time of your choosing. Now, when you're facing a 2,000-mile killing zone, I think the problem has to be divided into two parts. And that's why I've been talking about the first part is the, the distant phase in which you don't project people, you don't send people into the fray, you send uh, missiles and cognitive attacks. And only once you've gained the upper hand in neutralizing the enemy's defenses, that is the time to, to launch the close fight, the fight that we are much more familiar with, and project people. And these people may be accompanied and almost certainly will be accompanied by a varied array of robots and drones and other technological weapons, you know, platforms that are gradually coming into existence so that the human is protected as much as possible. And we're seeing this a little already when the U.S. Marine Corps has recently modified its longstanding squad establishment and added to it a technological operator, not another rifleman. And this technological operator will be able to access the full suite of national resources that can be brought to bear in the fight. And I suspect going forward, and now we are talking about the future, but going forward, that technical operator will be the key person in the squad, and the squad, the rifleman in that squad, will exist to keep him or her alive. Sounds extremely dangerous. I think I might have uh, misquoted you. you. You're saying 2,000 miles. Oh, God, sorry. That was my Americanism coming back. Uh, 2,000 kilometers. 2,000 kilometers, right. It is extraordinary. Like, I can remember being in El Mutana province of Iraq a decade ago, 
when Australian troops were protecting Japanese engineers and the Japanese had a small helicopter drone, which is an enormous novelty. Everyone was agog when this flew ahead of a convoy that I was in. But that seemed to be the start of it, or to my knowledge, that was the, my first experience of that sort of technology, unmanned, um, aiding in um, a combat environment. And we seem to have reached an extraordinary position where I think the chief of the army said the other day that the army's the biggest user of drones in Australia. Is is it all accelerating at an extraordinary speed? It is accelerating. And and that's one of the way technology, the take up of technology works. We've reached tipping points. And when that breakthrough occurs, the technology accelerates. So if you go back to the origins of the Industrial Revolution, it took young took engineers 50 years to perfect the steam engine. But once they did, all kinds of other things that uh, fell out from that initial breakthrough and the industrial revolution was born. So now we're seeing another, basically in a sense, an industrial revolution where we're able to program machines to operate remotely at great distances. And soon we'll also see, but we'll also see, and, and frankly are already seeing in a primitive form, the implementation of artificial intelligence, where machines are given a task and are able to carry it out without further human intervention. And I imagine that uh, going forward, and again, in the future, uh, we will see a much greater uptake and a much greater reliance upon artificial intelligence and warriors, soldiers, who may not quite be human. Modified humans? Well, that is potentially part of the mix too, but an Australian squad of the future, which today consists of eight soldiers, may in the future contain four soldiers and you know several dozen machines. And the soldiers are really operators of the machines. Now that's just one potential future uh, direction, but we're starting to unpack this problem. And so there are many different potentials here. And what we're now doing is, or what one of the things that I'm doing is raising the questions so that when we go out onto this journey, we first discover or first try to identify the destination we want to get to. And you do that by raising questions. And then over time, we unpack those questions, decide more clearly on the route. So yes, the future may see um, Australian soldiers, men and women, working alongside quite intelligent uh, mechanical devices. And this is a question to Al, the historian in you, I think. Does this make conflict more or less likely? Can we get drawn into a conflict because well, it's only machines to start with? I, I, I think the answer to that is that it's neutral because you know, machines themselves don't cause a conflict. You know, the rifle is, is just a tool. And the causes of the conflict are, are more closely linked to one side or the other wanting something and weighing up the odds, making quite a rational judgment about whether or not they have the power to achieve their aims. And so the, the real things that may make war more commonplace are not actually directly related to the technology. It's much more closely related to human requirements. Al, as always, a privilege and fascinating to listen to you. So thanks very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. Backed by long experience in the Defence Department, Kate Lewis of the Australian Industry Group explained what industry needed to do to produce the best possible equipment for Australian men and women facing this combat environment. 
Kate, you've had 20 years in defence as a defence civilian. Um, you're, you're now in the industry, in the sort of general policy area. How well do you think industry produces equipment that is best used by personnel, combat personnel or our military personnel? And how strongly does industry actually feel the responsibility to do the best possible job? Thanks, Brendan. Well, answering the second part of that question first, I really do believe they take that as uh, the most significant responsibility and accountability and delivering capability to our troops is the number one priority. I think the last couple of years we have had a fantastic transformation of the Australian Defence and Industry Partnership, um, really. But now I think there is an opportunity to really broaden and deepen that relationship. And how do you think that could be done? You just gave a very interesting speech at the Chief of Army Seminar. Could you basically run through, summarise what you felt your ideas were, because they were obviously well received here. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, look, I think there are a number of lines of effort that are important to build on those foundations that we have. Uh, the first point I'd make is around really being able to source uh, non-traditional sources of innovation and capability, whether that's through the commercial sector, who are leading uh, a lot of the technologies that are going to be very important to our future, around making sure that our procurement structures are appropriate in terms of risk appetite and leaning forward. That's an important first point. I do think that bringing industry into the force design process in a really meaningful way and having a very meaningful dialogue with defence about what the future technological and strategic challenges are going to be and what industry might be able to or how they might be able to respond and what kind of solutions we might be able to put forward is really important. And there are some probity challenges around that that we need to address. And what's the role of defence exports? Defence exports just a, a sort of financial economic opportunity for industry or do they have a bigger role? So my view is that building a defence export uh, and the industrial capacity around that has a number of important facets. The first one is uh, building um, industry growth, but that's really important because that gives you economies of scale, which allows the delivery of capability to the ADF in a cost-effective way. That's a really important part of a defence export strategy. Yep. And, and can you see it expanding, the base, the export base in Australia? There's a yeah. lot of competition. There is a lot of competition and there are a lot of challenges in a defence export market. Uh, a lot of, uh, and we have a really significant regulatory environment around that. Uh, there are a lot of issues with um, dealing with our international counterparts on the export front. But indications are very positive that it's going very well. I understand export applications are uh, up a long way. I think there is a real positive buoyancy in the industry about how that's going to occur. But I do think that any export strategy needs to have a really strong promotion element, but a really strong, cohesive, transparent, understood regulatory framework as well. Right. And Australia's developed some very effective technology in sort of niche areas. As an example, the CEA radar. Yeah. You know, after a long uh, development process, the Bushmaster has turned out to be really spectacularly successful. Do you feel that, that we have a particular talent in terms of engineering and design 
for developing those quite major niches? I do think that that we have some big advantages in the country around, you know, uh, things like how wonderful our universities are, how great our research sector is. Uh, We are fostering uh, the workforce of the future that uh, is going to be able to have the talent to develop those things. I'm really pleased you mentioned the CEA radar uh, where, you know, that's just an incredible um, capability that I think has developed for a a number of reasons. And that's the kind of capability that I think we should uh, be trying to nurture, invest in, create an environment and the ecosystem that will support the development of such a capability. The last thing, I've done a bit of research on the Bushmaster project and um, one of the things that, that struck me most strongly was that after quite a long period of stop-start, Bushmaster went into production. They, were, they went on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, a number of them were destroyed. Uh, no Australian soldier died in one, more than 100 incidents. There was a nexus form. Combat soldiers, industry and the defence science group all working together to rapidly find solutions so that they could actually improve the vehicles that were in Afghanistan on operations and improve those being still manufactured in Australia. Is that a sort of classic example of the whole system working well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a terrific point. And it's all about uh, pulling in the same direction with our Defence Science Technology Group, uh, with industry, with defence, and with government setting up that environment to allow that kind of responsiveness, that kind of risk profile and that kind of procurement structures to allow that to happen. Well, what it took was a war. Is there a way to make that formula come together in peacetime? I think we can certainly, we must and we should certainly uh, attempt to do that. Uh, I would suggest that DiggerWorks is another way in which operational experience has been able to go from the battlefield into industry and able to quicken that procurement cycle. I think a DiggerWorks at a strategic level uh, across the Defence Force uh, would be a wonderful thing to pursue, which would hopefully allow that kind of thing that you have suggested. Kate, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Marcus, one half of our two grumpy strategists, to give his wrap of the Land Forces Conference. So I've just come back from four days in Adelaide at the Land Forces Conference and I had a really good time. There's a lot of really interesting and, in, in fact, inspiring work going on. Uh, you might have read in Brendan Nicholson's interview with Rick Burr, the Chief of Army, that he said Army needs to invest intellectually in its modernisation and there was lots of really good evidence of that going on uh, in Adelaide and I, I think Rick Burr is the right man for the job for Army at the moment as it's going into a period of uh, what's really you know, intense and rapid technological change. So he's put out his army in motion concept, his accelerated warfare concept. And I think that's really the right kind of intellectual leadership for army at the moment. And you can also see that that is flowing down through army and also flowing out through industry. You know, one example of that that I saw is that um, army headquarters brought in a bunch of young diggers, so junior leaders from the brigades and 
brought them down south, hooked them up with um, uh, DST scientists, and together they sort of explored a whole bunch of ideas about what the future of warfare would look like. You know, if you're a junior leader out on patrol, what kinds of technologies will help you? You know, what's a hindrance? You know, and I think that's a really fertile kind of interaction between, you know, the diggers and the scientists. And so right across land forces, I think there was a you know, really good evidence of good thinking going on, really good engagement with uh, Australian industry. So one uh, really nice thing that I saw is that for the future air defence project, Land 197 Bravo, we had a Hawkeye protected mobility vehicle designed and built in Bendigo being integrated with a CEA air defence radar. So the uh, radar company here in Canberra, and they're working together to integrate those two capabilities. So it was really nice to see that Australian innovation going on and Australian companies working together. That was, I thought, really quite inspiring. Of course, there's still all of the, you know, big players there. So the international primes who are bringing big armoured fighting vehicles there. So lots of contenders for Land 400. And some of you probably know that I have a few views on, you know, whether Army should go all in with another $15 billion on armoured fighting vehicles. But, you know, there's different views on that. And I think, you know, one of the really good things is that, you know, people, including Army, are really open to having a discussion about that. Overall, I'd say that Army's got its head in the game and is really uh, in the right place to be thinking about the future. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with regular programming this week. Thank you.